Lord, that indeed is our prayer. God, that you would build your church. God, we ask that you would be pleased to test our attitudes, test our hearts, to renew our minds, to cause within us a willingness to obey you. And God, as we've come in this place in your name to gather together as your people, I pray that you would be present among us abundantly so. I pray, Lord, by the Holy Spirit, you would cause each of us to sense the weightiness of your glory. And Father, as we look to you for our life's purposes, as we look to you to understand what it is you have for us, I pray that you would grant us eyes to see, grant us ears to hear. God, grant to us a willing spirit to obey you wherever you lead. God, that will require courage for many of us, a boldness that we do not have on our own power. So we ask that you would impart to us and empower within us all that we need to walk faithfully with you. And Father, as we come to your word, we do ask as we've just sung that you would speak. God, I pray that you would be faithful to your word to cause it to come to full effect and fruitfulness in our lives. Bring us to a place of great joy. Help us to see you in your full majesty. And Father, as we think about the world that you have placed us in, we see brokenness everywhere, we see heartache everywhere, and we ask God for your comfort, we ask for your peace. Even amongst our people in this place, there are some who are gathered here with needs, unspoken, heartbreak, unspeakable. And I pray, Lord, that you would minister to each of them. And I pray, Lord, that you would minister to each of us as we minister to each other. So, Father, those who have lost loved ones, those who have lost whatever it is they have lost, I pray, Lord, that in in their grief they would find you and you would be their ever-present help. Father, we're also mindful this Veterans Day weekend of all those men and women who have served in our armed forces. We are so grateful for them. Thank you for their service and sacrifice. And Lord, we pray that you watch over them. We pray that you bless them. And God, we ask that you would help them to see our own gratitude and thankfulness for them as we pray for them and ask your blessing to be upon them. And so now, Lord, as we turn to the ministry of the word, do for us and do in us all that you will. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all. Um, last night, uh, yesterday, I was coaching baseball um, and uh, driving home from San Jose late, about 11 o'clock p.m., and uh, hit the fog. And I was thinking to myself, where do we live? England? This is ridiculous. <laughs> So anyways, uh, welcome, and I'm glad that you're here, and you made it safely, and all that kind of good stuff, but I pray that you are enjoying the fog, and uh, just kind of the drizzly weather. For me, it's just like, well, I need three things. I needed a cup of warm beverage, I need a fire, and I need a book, and uh, that's what I need in life when it's days like this, so... I'm glad that you're here. My name is Phil. I'm one of the pastors here at Golden Hills. If you're new to our church, I do want to welcome you and uh, thank you for being here. If you have any questions, let me know. Um, I'd love to help in any way I can. We have some people uh, that would love to help uh, any way we can as well. 
Um, I want to begin with uh, by just taking a moment to let you know about an important announcement regarding uh, Pastor David Morgan. You probably noticed he's not leading worship today. Um, that was kind of obvious. Uh, and the reason for that, I want to let you know, uh, today he is actually leading worship um, as a pastoral candidate at a church in San Jose. You see, at about six or seven years ago, Pastor David Morgan was discerning a call of God to explore a possible change in his pastoral ministry. And what is pretty uh, remarkable is at the same exact time, I was exploring what to do next because I was the young adult pastor. Um, I used to lead a ministry called Kairos for our young adults. By the way, if you're here and you're a high school student, 18 to 25 year old, uh, go to Kairos. That's a place where you can be built up in the Lord. And uh, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, and I was telling David about, uh, you know, interviewing at a church in Montana and, and uh, where else was it, Chicago and some other places. In fact, it was, it was a crazy time. I didn't know what to do. Uh, Pastor Larry and Pastor Phil Hill were helping me discern that kind of stuff. And some churches would reach out to me, and they're like, hey, we really think that you could help us as a church. Would you mind, like, sending us a resume? I was like, sure. Submit my resume, and they return a rejection letter. I'm like, bro. <laughs> I didn't even seek you out. You sought me out. Like, uh, uh, yeah, I guess I invite rejection. So uh, Pastor David actually was going through the very same thing. He was kind of uh, discerning what the Lord had for him. And so he, uh, as a result, enrolled into seminary, um, seeking to be better equipped for a new role in pastoral ministry. And he graduated back in 2020, which is a terrible time to graduate. Uh, but he graduated from seminary in 2020 with a master's degree in uh, leadership, and uh, his plan was to stay through the transition uh, with Pastor Larry and I, and then he would look for his new role. But then COVID hit and ruined everything. Um, but what happened is a few months ago, uh, Pastor David began searching again, and uh, he was contacted by a number of churches, and none of them really were panning out. And then more recently, a church in San Jose contacted him about a combo role where he would lead worship, but he would primarily be their executive pastor. Now, an executive pastor helps with administration and finance and helps with all kinds of things behind the scenes. And, um, and that's something that um, more and more David is, is wanting to do. So he would do that three quarters time and then he would lead worship probably a quarter time, something like that. Uh, the church in San Jose is planting a new church and uh, their ex current executive pastor is gonna be leading that effort. And so they needed somebody to come and help them uh, through that transition and then to take over that role. And so he's interviewed uh, with the church and they invited him to be the candidate, the official candidate this weekend. So he's meeting with the elders and a whole bunch of people. And um, Lord willing, this weekend after his visit there, they will uh, officially extend a call to become uh, the pastor, uh, a pastor at that church. If all goes well, um, and the senior pastor says, yeah, th this should be good so long as nothing crazy happens. And all of us who know Pastor David, we all go, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, we just know sometimes he's a goofball. So uh, we are praying against the goofiness and uh, asking the Lord to watch over him. Um, and they are discerning whether Pastor David would be a good fit for them. And he's discerning whether he would be a good fit for them. We don't, it's not a done deal yet, but we should know more tonight or tomorrow. Uh, should the church call him, then he would uh, take that new role, executive worship pastor, um, sometime in January. If they do not extend a call, then he'll uh, return to us, continue to lead worship, and then he'll continue to look for that next role. And uh, we will come alongside of him and continue to help him to find God's next assignment. Now, here's where you come in as the church. 
I'm asking you that we pray for Pastor David. As someone who's been through these kinds of transitions, it is unsettling, um, uncomfortable, it's sometimes confusing, um, it's bitter because you, you're leaving people you love, it's sweet because you're like, what, is, what does the Lord have for me? Um, it's everything, every range of emotion you can experience. So we need to pray for he and his wife, Stephanie, and pray for their two kids, Morgan, or Mason and Eden. And um, as you know, there's going to be a huge transition for them, changing schools, changing houses, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, it's also going to be just a change for them personally. And not only that, but it's going to be a change for us. Uh, we as a church love uh, I gave myself a pep talk before the last service, between the last services. Um, yeah, it's, uh, we just love them, you know, and um, so we're going to, uh, um, we're going to pray, hopefully, um, we're going to pray for the Morgan family and, and for that transition, so. Father, we do thank you for our brother David. Um, I thank you for the last 14 years of serving alongside of him. God, I thank you for the many contributions he's made to our church. Uh, the times he's made us laugh, the times he's led us in worship. And God, as he's been leading worship at a church in San Jose today, uppermost in our desire, the thing we want to see most through this process is that you are glorified. And so I pray, Lord, that that church has been blessed as we have been blessed year in and year out. And I pray, Lord, that this process of working, working things out of a transition, Lord, that you would be merciful and gracious to their family. Be with Mason and Eden as they contemplate as best they can what a move means for them, changing schools and whatnot. But Lord, above all these, we just want your will be done. And so we ask for clear discernment, we ask for clear wisdom, we ask for clear direction. And God, we ask for your provision. God, you not only provide the church provisionally with money and buildings and things like that, but above all these things, you provide the church with people, gifted people. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to have David use his gifts for your glory among your people in the church down in San Jose. And Lord, as we pray for him, we want to be a joyous people. Lord, this is how these things happen in church. And we pray, God, that you would cause us to be a sending church, that we'd be a church eager, willing, and joyously sending him out to accomplish the things that you have assigned him to accomplish. God, may we be unrelenting in our prayer and support. May we be a people that rally And that we just pray that you would protect the hearts of his kids and his wife. And God, watch over them. So Lord, we commit them to you to have your way. And we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, I have other announcements which seem so less emotional. So let's get to those. 
A um, couple of things. When you walked in, you know, you'll notice that there was tables in the back, and, and we're collecting all our shoe boxes for uh, the Operation Christmas Child shoe box. So make sure you get your shoe boxes in. Uh, next week is the last day to do that, so get it in by two o'clock. Um, Want to let you know too, we have tickets available for our women's ministry Christmas gathering, formerly known as the Christmas Extravaganza. It's a December 4th at 3 o'clock. Uh, ticket sales are still ongoing. They have a speaker named Irene's son. She's, she's fantastic. And um, I, I can't sneak in. But anyways, I, I, I can't wait to hear uh, just what the Lord does through her uh, ministry uh, for all the ladies that gather. And so I just want to let you know that that's there. And uh, it'll be a really rich time. And then next week, we are going to uh, be having a, a, a baptism between the services. So uh, right around 10 o'clock, we're going to make our way outside and we're going to baptize uh, a few folks. And um, we know that they are genuine Christians because they're willing to be baptized outside in November. Uh, we will warm the waters and make sure all is well. But yeah, that's all. <laughs> We have another one, I think, in January, so maybe those people are even more rugged, so they're all from Wisconsin. Um, yeah, so come early, stay late is one of the mottos we have around here. We highly encourage you, come early, uh, and I know that's not asking a lot, but uh, come, early, come early so you can witness uh, this baptism with these folks, and, and if you go to the 830 service, stay late. It'll be a really good time. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at the Lord's Day and the Gathered Church. The Lord's Day and the Gathered Church. When my family goes on vacation and stuff, uh, inevitably, if we drive, it's the little kid thing that you hear, which is like, are we there yet? Um, and that happens sometimes, but uh, more, more often, the question that we're asked is, where are we going? <laughs> And it's usually in the morning if we're in a hotel or an Airbnb or something like that. The kids will be like, where are we going? What are we doing today? What are, where are we going? And that is because when we went to the East Coast a couple years ago, we went to Boston, New York, and Plymouth, and uh, Philadelphia, and all that kind of stuff. And we walked the entire Freedom Trail. And if you've never done that, it's like 17 miles, like uphill all, every way. Like it's, just, it's just a long ways. In fact, uh, we got blisters and stuff like that. So on our East Coast trip, which is a couple weeks long, um, every morning they're like, where are we going today? And they'd be having, you know, like flip-flops or like walking shoes. And it's like, this matters. What you're going to do today matters. Your feet matter, you know? And so we would tell them, we're only going to walk a short distance. It's always flip-flop weather. Or we're going to walk a lot. All right, put your shoes on. Because the destination, what you plan to do and where you're headed that really does shape and kind of inform how you prepare yourself. If you're gonna to go to the snow, you prepare yourself accordingly. If you're gonna to go to the beach, you prepare yourself accordingly. Where you are headed determines how you kind of prepare yourself, how you live currently. Now, when we think about being Christians, when we think about what it means to be a Christian, and we think about this concept of where you're headed determines how you kind of live, we are headed for what is called the new heavens and new earth. It's a place in which righteousness dwells. It's free of sin. It's a physical place with unspeakable joy. It's a place where we're going to be in the presence of God, but not just as individuals. We will be together in the presence of God, in a physical space with immense joy and celebration for all that God is and all that God has done. And if that is our destination, that should inform how we go about living in this world. And in fact, 
If our destination as God's people, the church, is to be gathered together in his presence, then it would seem kind of reasonable that while we're here on earth waiting for that time, that we would prepare ourselves by, I don't know, gathering together as the people of God in God's name. And that's what we're going to look at today, is on the Lord's day, which is a Sunday, it's the gathered church. That's the day. That's what we do. So I'm going to start by reading Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. And here is what we read. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What I'm going to do with this uh, sermon today is we're going to look at a couple of components. Number one, we're going to look at this whole love and good works concept because that is what we're supposed to be stirring one another up towards. So we'll, we'll look at that and then we'll look um, at gathering together. What are we supposed to do when we gather together? How is it supposed to look? And what should we expect to experience as we go about doing that? And so that's kind of how the flow will be. So let's start with this. If you notice in verse 24, it reads, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This is for you grammar nerds, this is in the imperative mood. That means it's a command. That means you don't have an option. This is something you got to do. And the command is that we need to stir one another up towards love and good works. But if you notice, there's a word that I uh, left out, and that is the word consider. We are commanded to consider, which is the idea that we should be intentionally thoughtful and we should deliberate, so to speak, about how we stir one another up towards love and good works. It means we don't do it accidentally. It's intentional. We are trying to be intentional about stirring up one another. Now, if you notice... This is not a command about rousing yourself. It's not about you trying to motivate yourself to be better. Notice the command says we should consider how to stir up who? One another. God has commanded us that we need to be intentional, deliberate. We need to think thoroughly about how to help other people. And if you notice, it's to stir them up. And as Pastor Dennis mentioned last week, uh, stirring up is not a gentle nudge. It's a strong persuasion. Another way to put it, uh, the way the Greek uses it, it's, it's agitation. Now, if you've ever uh, got paint, you know they put it in one of those paint shakers? It's called an agitator. And you're like, man, I'm glad they're doing it because I don't think I could handle it. I don't think I have what it takes to shake that thing for as long as I need to and as violently as I should. Agitation is not annoyance. It's not annoyance. That's how many of us think of it. Oh, agitating, man, I'm just annoyed. No, no, no. Agitation is insistence. I insist. So when you have a sleeping teenager who doesn't want to go to school, you agitate them. And what you do is you shake the bed or you shake them or you slap them a little bit, something. But you need to agitate them. Yes, they will find it annoying, but you are being insistent. You better wake up. 
We got to go. And that's the same kind of idea here is we are commanded to figure out ways that we can intentionally and deliberately agitate people to wake up so that we can pursue love and good works. For there's so many people in this world, even among those who call themselves Christians, who are lulled to sleep by trivialities like Netflix. And they have not thought deliberately or intentionally about how to help other people. All they think about is how to satisfy their own desires. And so we need to agitate. We need to agitate one another. Wake up. Wake up in love. Wake up and do good works. Wake up and follow God. Because God intends for us to help one another. Here's how he put in 1 Thessalonians 5. The Apostle Paul writes that God has not destined us for wrath. We Christians are not doomed. We're not going to hell. God instead has destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this Lord Jesus Christ has died for us, paying our penalty so that we don't have to face the wrath of God. So whether we are awake or asleep, that is whether we are living in this world or we're already dead, We're going to live with him. That's our destiny. Not hell, but heaven. Therefore, look at this in verse 11. Therefore, in light of this destiny, this destination, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. So because we know where we're going, it impacts how we live now. Since we are going to a place together, let's now help each other. Did you see it? Since that is what we await, let's help prepare each other for that day by building and encouraging each other up. Since we're not going to be alone with God forever, in this world we ought not to be alone either. Since we're going to be with God, with each other forever, we should be with each other now. Now, what is the love and good works that we are to agitate people towards? I hate generalities. Generalities are just too easy to ignore. So, if we tell people, hey, you just need to love better. Okay. Like, what does that even mean? Some people think that they are loving by being coddling and by being overly affirming and by just letting people do whatever it is they want to do. Your eight-year-old wants to eat some Sour Patch Kids for breakfast. I, I don't want to be a bad mom. I just go ahead. That's not love. Or some people think they're loving by always calling out people for all their wrongdoing. So they're just like sitting on Facebook just like, I'm going to get, I'm going to get you. And he's like, what about this? And just all the time, it's like, knock it off. What is love? What is the good works that we see here? And I think the indication is this. If you look back at verse 24, it's the stirring up one another. I think that's the clue. If you were to read the New Testament and you just simply took that phrase, one another, or something similar to that, and then you just read all the texts about that, I believe that you would come to the conclusion of, oh, this is what it looks like practically to love and to do good works. 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a sample of this. There's a whole bunch, but I'm only going to do about a like a dozen or so. And there are positive commands, go and do this. And there are negative commands, which is you better not do that. And I'm going to show you that. Start generally. A positive, Paul says in Galatians 5.14, the whole law that is the word of God is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, it's a big general thing. This is a positive. Go and love. Go do this. Go love. And here's a negative. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. That's a negative, which means don't do this. Now, why this is important is because a lot of times you can find out what a thing means by evaluating what it isn't. So if you want to know what love is, a helpful way to do that is by simply evaluating what it isn't. So what isn't love? Biting and devouring one another. Now, that isn't like physically, you're not cannibalism. But what it means is biting and devouring one another in the sense of having interpersonal conflict through the usage of your words. It is not love to gossip about each other, to slander each other, to lie about each other, and to tear down people with our words. That is not love, no matter how you want to try to spin it. Nope. It's not love. So let's look at the positive commands. Let's be positive and encouraging. Here are a handful. There may be more than 12 now that I think about it. Uh-oh. Anyways, it, there, there's a, a number in there. And we're going to start with what Pastor Calvin read in Romans chapter 12 about what are practically, specifically, love and good works that God has called us to, that we should agitate people towards. Here's a sampling, just from this one chapter. There could be more, but I just chose these ones. Love one another with brotherly affection. That is, love one another like you love your family. Outdo one another in showing honor. Respect each other. Contribute to the needs of the saints to, and seek to show hospitality. Where do people have needs and how can you meet those? Welcome people into your life. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. We don't use that word today. It means proud or arrogant or boastful. But instead, associate with the lowly, the humble, the one who has nothing to offer you. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. We'll continue on. Romans 15. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You did nothing to deserve Christ's affectionate and warm embrace. And therefore, you should welcome people, not because they deserve it or earn it, but because that is the right thing and the gracious thing and the loving thing and the Christian thing to do. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about divisions in the body. And in fact, the members of the body, the church, should have care for one another. 2 Corinthians 13, aim for restoration, comfort one another, 
agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Galatians 5, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That is selfishness and self-indulgence. If Christ has set you free, it's so that you can love by serving one another. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see, serving one another, loving one another, caring for one another would require that we bear one another's burdens. To remind one another, you're not alone in this. Cancer, I'm not leaving your side. Unemployment, we got your back. We're here for you. Be kind to one another, one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. As we contemplate and think about all the sin that Jesus has to forgive us of, who are we to be sinned against and withhold forgiveness? Forgive one another. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. So we teach and admonish. Um, See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. 1 Peter 4, keep loving one another earnestly. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling and use whatever gift you have to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. If you want to know practically, specifically how I can love and how I can do good works. This is how. And we need to agitate each other and compel each other and figure out ways to compel one another towards doing this more and more. To not let it slide when people lie to each other. To not let it slide that you aren't contributing to the needs of the saints. To not let it slide that you're being inhospitable. No, 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 no. Agitate one another. Wake up from your selfishness. Put on Christ and care and love and bear the burdens and serve and pray and confess to one another. Forgive one another. Love. Now some negatives. This is like, A, quit it kind of stuff. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide not to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. This is a conversation about whether you should eat or drink. And some people think you're free to do it. Other people don't think. And they're saying, whoa, don't be judging each other on these things of conscience. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You see, jealousy is when you want something that somebody else has, but envy is when you want that thing, but you're willing to make sure that the person who has it loses it. It's vicious. It's disgusting. 
evil. Don't be doing that. Don't lie to each other. Why not? Because you've put off the old self with its practices. In other words, since you are in Christ, how can lies come out of your mouth? That applies to social media too, brothers and sisters. When we post articles which are lies, you're lying. Even if someone else wrote it. Because you are dispensing lies. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers, James 4. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. So when you look at these things, if you ask yourself the question, how can I love? How can I do good works? How can I agitate my brother or sister to compel them to love and do good works? This is what you have. Compel them, push them forward to these things. Encourage them, think critically and intentionally about how can I build them up so that they will care more, that they will bear one another's burdens more, that they would serve one another more, that they would be more hospitable? How do, I, how do I compel them to be praying more, to contributing more? How can I do this? More and more. And the reality is, God has intended for us to build each other up. This is a, a verse we've used a lot in this series, that God has given the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, people like myself, for what purpose? And that is to equip the saints. And who are the saints? Y'all. God has given me to equip, which means your responsibility is to be equipped. And what is the purpose of my equipping and you being equipped? Is so that you all can do the work of the ministry. Now, what is the work of the ministry? Is it like serving a kid's ministry or being an usher, a greeter, or the prayer room? Yes, but a whole lot more. Well, what more? Everything we just read about the one another's. If we're going to minister to one another, ministry to one another is not merely signing up on a clipboard. It is signing up to give of your life for the good of someone else. I'm going to love you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to meet your needs. I'm going to pray for you. That is ministry. And that is what God has called us to. And what is the aim of this equipping in order to do the loving good works one another? It's for building up the body of Christ, as you can see. That is to say, you and I, the church together, is being built up, is being strengthened, is being growing in Christ when I am doing my job of equipping, you are doing your job of being equipped, and we're all ministering to one another with the one another's of loving, serving, giving, all this kind of stuff, because through that process, God strengthens, encourages, nourishes, builds up, and our church is stronger for it. Now, we continue to read that we speak the truth in love and we are to grow up in every way into Christ. That is to say, we become more like Jesus as we do this. As we agitate each other towards love and good works, we become more and more like Jesus, which is what the world needs most. And the whole body, when it's joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, 
That is when the pastors are equipping, the saints are being equipped, and everyone is doing the work of the ministry in order to build up the church. When all that's functioning properly, the body grows. And it builds itself up in love. We don't become a loving church by accident. We become a loving church by understanding what God has for us, obeying what God has for us, intentionally considering how to stir one another up towards love and good works. And if people are self-indulgent and don't want to think about others, then the church will never be built up and it will never be a loving church. Because self-love is the enemy of true love. Now what's shocking about this is let's go back to our text, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. I'm going to switch your mind. I'm going I'm to ask you to do thinking. And I know that's a tough ask, but think with me. Middle school students, high school students, you know exactly what textual an- analysis is. You know how to annotate text. This is nothing new to you. Look at verse 24 and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We've already discussed that. That's a positive command. The next thing that we read here, which begins with not neglecting to meet together, this is what's called a negative qualifier, or another way to say that is it's a negative, um, now let's not go deep into the grammar. It's a negative. Yeah. So this clause, this kind of sentence structure, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, that's a negative. You see, it's a negative because it says not, like don't do this. So we're building a positive, consider, stir one another up, love and good works, negative. Ah, don't do this. And then it's followed by another clause that starts with the word but, which tells us that this is a contrast to what just came before it but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So now I'm going to work backwards and help you understand what this text is saying. And the reason why I want to use this text to help you understand what it's saying is because this is the number one text that was quoted to me during the time of pandemic about why I'm a terrible pastor and Christian. And I was sick and tired of having to explain to people what it actually means and tired of people butchering the word of God in order to get certain kind of political points. I'm tired of it. So we're going to go to the text and we're going to learn together what it actually says. We start from the end and it starts with, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So encouragement is a positive, but it's contrasted with a negative. So the positive is encourage each other. The negative is don't stop meeting together. What's the relationship? It's this. Not meeting together is discouragement. Because the opposite of not meeting together is meeting together. And it says, positively, encourage. So you have the negative, don't do this, but instead do this. Because not meeting is discouraging, whereas meeting is encouraging. 
If you want to encourage someone, then meet together. That's why the contrast relationship is there. Don't do this, that's bad. But instead do this. Which means you can't encourage if you don't meet. Now let's go to the next text, which is verse 24. Consider how to stir one up towards love and good works. Some people would think that we need to encourage each other to meet together, but that's not the logical relationship here. The logical relationship is, let's encourage each other to consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works. And if you neglect to meet together, you can't encourage people to do that. Not meeting together, therefore, is the enemy of encouragement. Not meeting together is the discouragement of love and good works. Let me put it differently. Not meeting together is the enemy of church growth. It compromises the health of the church. It lessens the love of the church. It reduces the work of the ministry of the church. And it does not prepare the church for its destination. According to this text, stir one another up towards love and good deeds. But don't be doing this because if you don't meet, then you're going to discourage people from that. So instead, meet together for the purpose of encouraging people to grow spiritually. And if you don't meet together, then you are neglecting spiritual growth as a Christian. You tracking with me, church? Okay. I can tell you're thinking. I feel it right now. Do you feel that? It's kind of weighty, right? You're like, hmm. Don't minimize what you feel. I know you're afraid of your emotions, but that's okay. Feel that. Here's what Paul says. This is amazing stuff. He says to his uh, young uh, pastor, his mentor, or the kid he's mentoring, Timothy, he says, I remember your tears, Timothy. I long to see you. I long to see you. I long to meet with you face to face. Why? So that I may be filled with joy. Have you stopped to think about this simple, often overlooked reality that it is better to be in person than not? I was doing a wedding some time ago and there was a family member of the people getting married who couldn't make it and so they were going to FaceTime. And so somebody held up the phone <laughs> and he FaceTimed uh, the wedding. And I was like, this is ridiculous. But anyways, um, after the, the ceremony was over, we were at the reception. So I went over to the person holding the phone. I was like, how's your shoulder? And they're like, oh, it was burning. And I was like, all right. And I said, do you mind contacting uh, that relative? I want to ask them a question. Why? And I was like, I, I'm just curious. So they called and I asked the question, how did your experience of the wedding go? And his words were pretty lame. And I was like, did you think it would be otherwise? He's like, not really. And I find it fascinating that we all know it's pretty lame to FaceTime and to not be there in person. We all would rather be there in person. But we try to convince ourselves, no, no, it's okay. This is, this is okay. No, it's not. You know it's not. 
Quit trying to fool yourself. Joy. Joy is to be had by those who see each other, who can touch each other, who can embrace one another, who can laugh with one another, who can crack a joke and have liquid pour out of your nose, <laughs> fall out of your chair in a fit of giggles. I don't want to FaceTime that. I want to be there. When I watch sporting events, I was watching a Warriors game a couple days ago, and I'm watching the crowd's going nuts, and I'm sitting in my living room like, and Heather and the kid, well, Heather and Savannah are just sitting there and doing whatever they're doing, and I'm like, I have no one to celebrate with. This is terrible. I wish I was there. And then the Apostle John, he says this, though I have much right to, you probably don't remember this, but I, I preached this thing from my office. It was the Overlooked Letters. It was a sermon series that I did uh, right at the beginning of COVID and uh, you forgot about it because I did too but it's on, it was on second and third John and at the end of second John just listen to this this is the apostle John he says I have so much to write to you but I would rather not use paper and ink let me put it in modern terms I have so much to convey to you but I'd rather not do it through text instead I want to come to you and talk face to face why so that our joy may be complete. I love what the Apostle Paul does. He heard about the, he planted this church in Thessalonica. It's a struggling church because affliction, persecution, all kinds of stuff. And so Paul is very concerned that they have wandered from the faith. Being so concerned, he then sends Timothy to go and check in on the church. And uh, when he goes, he's like, hey, can you check in and see how they're doing and then come back and give us a report of what's going on because Paul's been praying, he's worried, he's anxious, he's like, I just don't know what's gonna happen. And so here's the report that was given uh, and here, uh, a report was given and then here's Paul's response. He says, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? What possibly could I say for what I'm feeling? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day. So the joy and the praying is for what? I wanna see you face to face. Why? I wanna supply what is lacking in your faith. There is something amazing that is happening here. Paul longs to see the church face to face so that he would have the joy of being with them but also he wants to be face to face with them because there is something lacking in their faith that only being present with them in person will provide. Did you see that? Being in person face to face provides for us in our faith something that cannot be received or experienced in any other way. Paul said, I can't wait for that. Now, unfortunately, in our culture today, there are so many people who reject what I've just said so far in this sermon. There's so many people who say, eh, I don't think that's true. I don't think you have to be together to grow spiritually. I don't think going to church is necessary. I don't think you have to be together because there's greater joy if you do. And for whatever reason, I don't know if this has got into people's minds, especially in the American Christian culture, it's, it's crazy. 
Um, and so when I talk to young people, especially about this, especially kids who go away to college and they never find a local church and they don't see any reason to, and I'll ask them the question, don't you think you should be gathering with the saints? And they're like, well, why? Am I a Christian because I go to church? And I usually reply, no, but if you're a Christian, Christians go to church. And it's a big difference. But what's inevitably, what inevitably happens is I then will be quoted some kind of statement that sounds like this. Tell me if you've heard this before. You can talk back to me. That's okay. I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm just more concerned with being the church rather than doing the church. There's entire books about this where people go, nah, I don't want to do church anymore. I just want to be the church. Okay, I'm not sure how to compute that. And the reason I don't know how to compute that is because words mean things. Um, let me help you with this in case you don't understand what I'm saying. When people say they want to not do church, what they mean is this. I don't really want to like get up and go to church and be with a bunch of people I don't know and don't really care about. Sing a bunch of songs that I may not even know and may not even like. I don't want to pray about things which are irrelevant to me or hear some dude drone on and on in his sermon about stuff I don't even understand that doesn't even help me anyways. And I don't want people to tell me that I should be giving. I don't want, I don't want to deal with all that stuff. Instead, they want to just be the church. What does that mean? It's usually something like this. I just want to be the hands and feet of Jesus who passionately just loves other people. That's what I want to be. I'm like, okay. Except for the people who gather on Sunday. You don't want to love them because you're not willing to go uh, to, to be with them. But yeah, I, I see your point. Well, they'll say, I just, man, I just really, you know, just want to be the church. I just want to get with a few close friends who kind of get me. And I get them. And let's just like sit, you know, and just talk and just... You know, talk about spiritual things that apply to each other and, you know, just be together. We just know each other. That sounds great, except for that whole thing about what Jesus taught about. If you only love those who love you, what, what good is that? I digress. Let's move on. It basically means this, to be the church rather than do church is to gather together at any other time than when the church gathers, at any other place than where the church gathers for any other reason than why the church gathers with anyone other than those who actually gather. So people will conclude, ah, well, being home with my family is equal to, if not better than, gathering with the church. Uh, going to the cabin and, you know, reading a devotional, it's basically the same thing, so that's better. People will conclude, my small group is basically the church. It's basically the same thing. Other folks will conclude, well, the gathering is optional since, I mean, if you think about it, we go there to listen to a long sermon. I can download long sermons that are way better than what we'll hear at Golden Hills. <laughs> By a better preacher, communicator, and we'll be able to listen to better songs, more well played if I just pop in the new Passion CD or whatever. We don't do CDs anymore, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, why, why bother with all that nonsense? Waking up early, getting dressed, finding a parking spot, walking in here, running into people you don't want to talk to. Oh. 
And why bother with all this prayer? Why bother with all this scripture reading? Why bother with singing songs and pausing between the verses so we can reflect on what we just sang? Let's just come on. Let's go. Get this thing done. Got places to go, football to watch, lunch to eat. But brothers and sisters, by definition, the church is a gathering of believers. Like, (laughs) literally, the word church means assembly. And to assemble with other saints under the leadership of pastors and elders um, is by definition the church. So it's absurd to me to hear people say, I just want to be the church rather than do church. So wait, so in order to better be the church, which means to be with other believers gathering in the Lord's name, you're going to not gather with other believers in the Lord's name to become better at gathering with other believers in the Lord's name. That's absurd. The only way that that can be true is if you redefine church. Church is no longer something God has given to us. Church is something for me to consume. I go there, and if it meets my needs, I consume it. I go there, and if it does what I want it to do, I'll enjoy it. If it doesn't, I'm out. I'm off to the next place. Because I just want to be the church, which is I just want to take whatever it is they have to offer. But here's the weird thing. If you ever open your Bible and you just want to read through the New Testament, what is shocking is how often you read about Christians being together. It's weird. Not like in homes where it's just like mom and dad and the kids doing private devotion. But you see people all the time publicly. I mean, like, check this out. All these Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayers. By the way, that sounds a lot like a lot of doing stuff, doesn't it? There's preaching, there's communion, there's praying, fellowshipping. Uh, Part of that, we understand there would be singing involved. That's a lot of doing church to me. And as a result, of course, God says, stop doing church, just be the church. Nope, instead, awe came down. Glory descended on people who did church. (laughs) Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together in all things. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That sounds like contributing to the needs of the saints, being hospitable, caring for each other, serving one another, doesn't it? Love and good works. And day by day, they were attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people. And what was the result of all this doing church? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It seems like doing church is kind of a big deal. Just, I mean, unless glory is boring, unless you yawn at the majesty of God. So you see another thing. This is one of my favorite texts. This is about the church gathering. On the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, they were gathered together to break bread, communion. Paul was with them, intending to depart on the next day And he prolonged his speech until midnight. It's a good text for me. (laughs) 
Long sermons are biblical. So, <laughs> uh, that's ridiculous. All right. Notice this on the first day of the week, which is the Lord's Day, according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. The Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. It's not your day. It's the Lord's Day. Jesus rose from the dead, and therefore the church gathered together on the Lord's Day to worship, to hear preaching, to pray, to break bread, to baptize, to have fellowship, to give. They were gathering. That is what made what happened to us during the early days of COVID so damaging. For many weeks, we were unable to meet together in person. We experienced no opportunity to stir up one another towards love and good works, and the church was not being built up in love. Some people accused me of not caring about meeting together, and I would get all these emails, you don't care about this, and I was like, oh my gosh. I released a video almost every single week in which it began something like this. This is not ideal. None of us like what's happening. We don't want to do this any longer than we have to. And the first chance we get to meet in person, we're going to meet together because God has designed his church to be together, not to be apart. And for whatever, maybe they fast forward through that. Or they turned it off before I got to say, I don't know what it was, but I repeatedly talked about, (laughs) I love the church. And I was being accused of hating it. I didn't understand that. So we decided at the first opportunity, we were going to meet together in person. Now, a lot of people told me, man, but these courageous pastors in Southern California, they were meeting in person way before Golden Hills. Two weeks earlier. So they met at the end of May. We began in the second week of June. Yeah, but we didn't meet indoors. We met outdoors. And again, uh, chapter and verse, where is it again that a church has to meet with four walls and a roof? But people used to say, yeah, but it's so cold outside. Oh, so you're being persecuted for your faith because you don't have climate-controlled rooms. How American. Don't go on the mission field. If it's beneath you to sit in a camp chair to worship with the saints. Because if you go in the mission field, you may very well end up doing something similar to that. So when people would come, what was amazing is we would face scorching heat. Remember those days? At least I did. Face got so sunburned, getting blisters on my forehead. We faced freezing cold. <laughs> that was miserable. We had blistering winds. There was the threat of rain. We had the loud cars. But we knew that spiritual growth hung in the balance, and we were willing to endure all of that. Some refused to meet because we were outside. They said, nope, God's people are supposed to meet indoors, which is a horrible thing to say since about, I don't know, 80% of all Christians on planet Earth do not have the luxuries that we do. And to say that they are lesser Christians is despicable. We were apart, which meant we didn't bump into each other while we sat on our couches in our PJs. We didn't get asked how we were doing when we were apart watching videos. We didn't have to worry about conversations with people we hadn't met before. And at the same time, we couldn't look into people's eyes and see their pain and struggle, and we couldn't offer a word of encouragement or prayer. It was hard. 
And what was amazing was when people, when we started to meet together, what I kept hearing was this, I love being here. We would meet outside and we didn't, it was freezing or whatever and it's like, and beanies are all on and scarves. I love this. And people would say all the time, it's just so good. I, I can't put it to words, but it's just so good to be together. And people would say things like, I just feel God's presence here. Which leads me to say this statement, brothers and sisters. Spiritual things happen when we are physically together. Now let's go back to the text, chapter 10, verse 25. Let us agitate each other, stir one another to love and, love and good works. Let's not neglect meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but instead, let's encourage each other. Because, brothers and sisters, meeting together face-to-face is how God will grow his church and how we will encourage each other to press on to Christ-likeness and love and good works. It's the means. But if you notice, some people were building a bad habit. They were becoming habitually absent from the gathering. As I preached in August countless times, uh, talking about habits and talking about the culture and stuff like that, we do realize that what we do by way of habit will shape our hearts and our loves. And we, by our habits, having our hearts shaped and our loves reoriented, will continue to perpetuate those habits because our hearts have been conformed to them. So the more we do something, the more we love doing it, and the more we love doing it, the more that we want to do it. So when people get in the habit of not meeting together, what that means is their hearts have been reoriented and their loves and desires have been so calibrated that they feel as though not meeting with the saints is normal and good. It does not mean simply if you don't go to church a couple times a year that somehow you're living in sin. It may be, depending on what you're doing while you're not meeting. But some people would say, man, what Golden Hills did was so sinful. And I would say, what are you talking about? We were not in the habit of not meeting. At least I wasn't. I hated not meeting. I would not let my heart grow used to it. And neither should you have. You see, a habit is not when you do something sporadically. Like, hey, I had a surgery. I can't come to church on Sunday. Oh, you coward. (laughs) I know your leg is barely hanging on there, but you should have been there. (laughs) You're neglecting to meet with the saints. And what we said as a church was, if you are providentially hindered from meeting together, that is not sin. All these folks who are moving to Idaho and Montana because they love looking at snow, they haven't necessarily thought about having to shovel the snow. When the snow day comes, and it will surely come, and they are providentially hindered from gathering, and some of those same people who moved were the ones telling me how evil I was. If I wasn't a pastor and I didn't know better, I might write them an email and go, you better show up to church anyway, you sinner. but I would never do that because I understand that people are providentially hindered. You get sick, there's a snow day, there's a worldwide pandemic. Maybe, just maybe, God understands. 
But we can't make a habit of this. If we habituate absence from the local church, we, maybe even if we don't, maybe we don't even recognize it, but what we are doing is discouraging other people by our absence. We are discouraging them from love and good works. We are not encouraging them, uh, considering how to stir them up. We're not even considering how we might build one another up because we're just like not there. Now let's look briefly at what we should do when we gather on the Lord's day. I've tried to compel you that we should be thinking about others more than ourselves as Christians. That we should not neglect meeting together because that is the means by which God will encourage us and each other to become more and more like Jesus because spiritual things happen when we're physically gathered. But what should we do when we gather? Does anything go? Can we call the circus and get some juggling monkeys up in here? Like, oh, that would be fun. Kids will love it. There's two things, a little church history for you. Uh, there's, there's two ways of viewing this. One is called the regulative principle and the other one is called the normative principle. And these two views are about how we should go about doing our public church services. The regulative principle would say this, whatever we read in the Bible by way of command, like do this, don't do that, or by example, that's what we should do. Nothing more, nothing less. The normative principle would say, eh, actually, let's just not do the things the Bible says don't do, and anything else goes. So there's two ways of looking at it. Where are we as Golden Hills? We're, we lean more towards the regulative principle, where we would say, because we are a church that believes that God has revealed himself through this book, has sufficiently provided us with everything we need to know uh, in order to live a life worthy of God, that this book has authority over our lives as believers, that this book is inspired by God and contains no errors in all that it affirms and denies, I think we can lean on this book and trust it. And it will be sufficient for us to be a healthy, vibrant church. But I also understand that there's some wiggle room because the Bible never says whether or not we should have pews or theater seating or whether we should have a stack of rugs out there like we're in kindergarten where you get your rug and have rug time. There's nothing like that. We're not told whether we can have a balcony or not. We're not told whether or not the church should be in the round or rectangular or nothing like that. So there's a lot of wiggle room. We can do many different things. It doesn't tell us what to pray. It doesn't tell us what songs to sing. And so there's some wiggle room. But what I'm going to give you is this. As we read through the Bible, by way of direct command and by way of example, here is what I believe a church should do when it gathers. And I have six things. Yes. Firstly, and there are no particular order, just they came to me in this order. Firstly, we should welcome and greet one another. Because the Bible commands, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Or 2 Corinthians 13, greet one another with a holy kiss. <laughs> Again, if you've ever been to the Middle East, you'll understand that like men actually hold hands when they're out in public. 
as a sign of like brother, brotherly love. Uh, we don't do that in public. Um, they kiss one another on the cheek. Women do the same kind of thing. That's just, that's a cultural kind of thing. Uh, we don't do that. Uh, we handshake. Oh, we got some weird, or whatever. <laughs> so we should welcome one another. Why do we welcome one another? Because Christ in all of his glory, seeing all of our deficiencies, brokenness, sins, hatred towards him, in light of all of that, Jesus still warmly welcomes us and embraces us as his own. And as his people, we should look out and say, not because you deserve it or have earned it, but because Christ has given me the welcome, I'm going to extend his welcome to you. And we warmly embrace, warmly welcome those who come. And we greet them with a holy handshake or a secret handshake, as the case may be. Here's what James K. Smith says. He says this, in welcoming one another, we are immediately reminded that worship is not a private affair. We have gathered as a people, as a congregation, and just as together we are dependent on God, our creator, so too we are dependent on one another. When you come to church and you see people and you welcome one another, why do we do that? It's because you're not alone. And some people who showed up this morning feel alone. You feel isolated. And nobody sees you. And so we as a church need to look around us and literally, I see you. And we greet one another. And we welcome one another. Many of us are like, Horses with the little blinders. Got to get to my pew before someone else gets there. (laughs) Sit there, don't talk to anyone. Listen, critique, leave, off we go. But we should greet and welcome one another. The second thing is the ministry of the word. We see this in the scriptures where Paul writes to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Preach the word, he says. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. This is what Paul commanded a pastor to do in the church of Ephesus. The first common word we see here is exhort, which means to persuade with urgency. And the other common word we see here is teaching. Here's how I would conclude it. In all of our preaching, and teach, all of our preaching it should be an urgent-sounding, persuasive speech that is serious and yet joyous as we try to inform people of the glories of God in Jesus Christ. So I try to persuade you. I'm building arguments every week. My training in philosophy is, yay! And I'm, I'm laying these things out and I'm trying to convince you that what we see in scripture is true and I'm trying to be urgent about it. I try to be, I try to be <laughs> this is so important. And at the same time, I need to say something worthwhile. I need to teach you something. I'm not here to entertain you. We have juggling monkeys for such things. But that should be the preaching ministry, is that we're here to learn something of Christ in his scriptures. Another one is prayer. And this goes without saying, because we've already read this, Acts 2, that they gathered together. They were devoting themselves together for prayer. And why prayer is important, because you know what? In prayer, as Alan Noble writes in his book, Disruptive Witness, When we pray as a church, we are affirming that our dependency is not in ourselves, but on God and each other. As I pray the pastoral prayer after our singing, 
We're praying, God, help us. We can't do this on our own. And we pray together because we need each other and we need God. You are not an island and you are not God. Hate to break it to you. Another thing that we do is giving. Uh, the, the Jews at the time, they were in synagogue, they had a time of almsgiving, they called it, which is a time when you gave of your resources, money or, or whatever uh, physical needs. Paul says, now concerning the collection for the saints, I directed, as I directed the church of Galatia, so, also, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, what day is that? Sunday. Sunday. Better yet, the Lord's day. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So the giving is an essential part of this, making sure that the saints are provided for, making sure that the resources for the church continue to be supplied. And here's one of my favorites, singing. And why I like singing, I'm not a good singer, but why I like this part is because of Ephesians 5. This is absurd and weird and awesome all at once. Ready? We are to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Let me say that again. We are to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. <laughs> like, you didn't get it then. I see that. Um, <laughs> like, as we communicate to each other, it should be through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We should be talking to each other and sing songs. Like, we're all in an episode of the High School Musical. And it's just weird. Is that what the Bible means? Like, hey, stop talking, start singing. No. It means as we gather together as the church, our singing of hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs is not only directed to God, but is simultaneously an addressing of others. How this works is amazing. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, our song on earth is a speech. It is the sung word of God. Why do Christians sing when they are together? The reason is quite simply that in singing together, it is possible for us to speak and to pray the same exact word at the same exact time. In other words, for the sake of unifying the church in the word of God itself. When you sing and I sing, we're singing the same words with the same thoughts coursing through our minds and by God's grace, the same emotions emitting out of us. When the person shows up to church dejected, filled with shame, grief, downcast, discouraged, having trouble believing that God loves them and hears them and knows them and then comes to this room and is greeted and warmly welcomed and interacted with, prayed for perhaps, loved, cared for, burdens bared, however that works out. And then they sit there thinking, I can't sing this song. I don't know if I believe it right now. And then boom, the voices come out as one and everyone's singing of the goodness of God. You start to realize, oh, they believe this. And they're addressing me, believe this, believe this. And we all together, same words, same ideas, same God, same church, in the moment, unified. And it's so incredibly encouraging. 
Now, if you notice, when you sing, you use your body. Noise comes out of your throat. If you notice, when we give, unless you give online and then I don't know what to do with that. But anyways, when you give, it's with your body. When you pray, we we use our body, our words. We touch and lay hands on people. The ministry of the word, you're using your ears to hear. You have body. And you welcome and greet one another. And you got your secret handshake. Body. You can't do the one another's disembodied. Which means we need to be embodied. We need to be present among each other. Brothers and sisters, the act of gathering is so disruptive. And that's what our world needs as we are just completely oblivious to the things beyond this world. We need to be disrupted. We need to be shaken from our stupor. We need to see that there are things in this world far more important than what's happening on Facebook. The latest TikTok video is not the most pressing thing in the world right now. Your neighbor who was made in the image of God, who will one day be a glorious being, they are far more important. But it's disruptive. You got plans this weekend? Ah, church. Oh, don't worry. Just skip church. That's how most people think. Churches, whatever, it's churches what you do when there's nothing else to do for many people. Or if there's something really important and you have to weigh it out, youth sports, church. Trip to Disneyland, go to church. I got to do this and not that. It's so disruptive to have to wake up in the morning, to get dressed, to drive, to get the kids fed and dressed and prepared. And you got to remember to put deodorant on in the morning. It's just, it's a struggle. Going to church is very disruptive to the you do you lifestyle because you fundamentally and primarily go to church not for yourself, but for God and others. It's disruptive to your desires to just want to be liked by others rather than, you know, trying to serve others. It's so disruptive because church cares very little about your comfort and ease. God cares about you becoming more like Christ. So let me ask you this question as we close. How do you view coming to church? Typically, you fall into one of two camps. First camp. Coming to church is an optional, individual thing that we do in order to express our devotion to God. But we also think in our minds, there are many other ways to express our devotion to God. Church is just one of them. Therefore, it's optional. I can express my devotion to God by reading the Bible and having tea in my nook in my kitchen. I can express my devotion to God by going to a retreat or to a camp or whatever. I don't actually need church. What ends up happening when you think like this, you think that coming to church is a time for you to express how committed you are to God and to perform for him. God, this is how much I love you. My hands are raised. It's how much I love you, God. I'm doing this and I'm doing that. Because he's our audience of one. You heard that song before? 
How does God being the audience of one, not performative? You're here to perform for God. <laughs> so people think, man, I, but I need to, if I perform for God, it has to be genuine and authentic. Because I don't want to be a hypocrite. So I have to genuinely want to express this. I have to be vulnerable and I have to be authentic. But you and I know that authenticity and genuineness often produces a desire for newness or novelty. Whenever you encounter something new, you feel alive. You get a new phone. <gasps> you go to experience some new thing. It's like, man, I just feel alive right now. This is like genuine, authentic. Yeah. And that's what happens with churches. If a church becomes stale, you're singing the same old songs, you hear the same old sermons, you pray the same old prayers, I need something new. Because new is genuine, new is authentic, new is exciting. And I don't want to perform for God in a hypocritical, not exciting way. So that's one way to look at church. Here's another way to look at church. What if it's not a bottom-up thing where I perform for God, but what if it's God coming to me? What if by God's grace, he wants to grow us to be more like Jesus and so he has descended to us, condescended to us and given us certain gifts of grace? Take gathering with the saints. Take welcoming one another. Take praying. Take baptizing. Take the Lord's Supper. Take sermons. Take singing. These are gifts from me, God says. And when you participate in them bodily, I promise that I will work by the Holy Spirit to transform you from the inside out. So in fact, doing the same old thing week in and week out is called a habit. And if we actually develop the habit, habit of coming together to hear preaching and praying and singing, God will actually transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And it will be because that's a gift of his in grace. Spiritual growth, brothers and sisters, happens through physical gatherings. So, let's close our time. Let's pray and let's sing. Father, we ask that you would do in us and for us all that is required to make us more and more like Jesus. God, help us to not think of church as a performance. God, help us to not think of church as a way that we express our devotion to you. And instead, Lord, help us to see that the church is how you express your commitment to us. It's how you display your goodness to us. It's how you nourish us. It's how you feed us. It's how you strengthen us. It's how you equip us. It is how we are encouraged and how we encourage one another through our fellowship, through our praying, through our addressing one another in hymns, songs, and spiritual songs. It's agreeing with points in the sermon. It's praying along with prayers. It is all this and so much more. You have showed us in the Bible that as we do these things, you will be faithful to work through them.
to make us more like Jesus so that the world can be ministered to. And so I pray, Lord, help us to consider more and more how to stir one another up towards love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near, the window of opportunity is closing. God, help us to take advantage of what lays before us and help us to close this service by addressing one another with the truths of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.